Hello and welcome to The Alcohol File, a podcast series that explores how we can better understand the impact of alcohol in our lives. This podcast is provided by Alcohol Action, Ireland's leading independent advocate for reducing alcohol harm. I'm your host, Eunan McKinney, and today, along with an interesting and diverse panel of guests, we will explore a number of themes on how public health advocates can affect meaningful change to policy and alcohol policy in particular. This discussion arises from a very interesting paper published recently in Addiction Journal, authored by Matt Lish and Professor Jim McCambridge of York University. This paper explored a study explored a study that they had undertaken to understand the policy and the political dynamics that brought about the successful enactment of progressive legislation, the Public Health Alcohol Act in Ireland. I'm delighted to be joined by its lead author, Matt Lish. Matt is a research fellow at York's Department of Health Science. And together with Dr. Peter Rice and Laurie Beekman, we will discuss the necessary political strategies to foster major alcohol policy change. Dr. Peter Rice is chair of SHAP, Scottish Health Action on Alcohol Problems. He's also vice president of the European Alcohol Policy Alliance, a consultant to the WHO Europe, and is a former consultant psychiatrist in the UK's National Health Service. Laurie Bakeman is the executive director of Nordan. Nordan is the Nordic Alcohol and Drug Policy Network. Laurie is also a former vice president of Eurocare. So, if we can begin our discussion, gentlemen, and thank you all for joining us this morning. And we're going to start by just having a look at the paper that Matt had published recently. So that paper essentially reported on your study of the policy developments that took place in Ireland and having interviewed a cast of figures involved with that somewhat prolonged process, which I was party to myself, and analyze some of those contributions, you've identified three broad interdependent strategic endeavors that you suggest might be examined as a means of sustaining an effective process to influence alcohol policy change. And I suppose to adopt the military term or the military language that perhaps you, you, you adopted yourself is that, you know, we, we, we have a way and a means in relation to perhaps winning the battle. Uh, and it is a battle, some of this policy development. And of course, the significance of the analysis and the insight that you offer is that it not only presents something of a advocacy template, I think, for similar alcohol policy initiatives in other jurisdictions, but it also provides a basis to reflect on other effective alcohol-related uh, campaigns that have taken place by comparison, and crucially, how future initiatives um, can be successfully advanced. So by way of that introduction, Matt, I just wonder, perhaps, would you just give us um, a little, uh, just maybe spend a few minutes together, just trying to elaborate a little bit on the work that you've done here and what you see as those interdependent strategies? Well, thank you very much. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you and, and, the, and the panel here today. Um, so maybe I can actually uh, uh, talk a little bit about the paper just by providing some context. 
Um, so this is, you know, obviously a, a big ambitious piece of, of legislation, the public health alcohol bill. Um, and so this is this isn't the whole story, but but part of it. Um, we focus on advocates and primarily primarily the legislative battle um, between 2015 and 18. Um, but I just want to stress, I don't want to discount the, the efforts of individuals and organizations that that goes back decades. Um, and that's that's actually a critically important part of this, that th this is a long battle. Um, so in terms of the actual motivation of the study, um, we were particularly struck by the visibility of the advocacy community uh, in the debate in Ireland, and, and particularly as, as outsiders looking in. Um, there was a strong presence in, in press coverage and editorials, and you had people like Dr. Frank Murray who were, who were front and center um, in, the, in the press. And so what we did is we attempted to retrace what happened, um, interviewing the main advocates, um, some of the key politicians, government officials, and others, um, in order to kind of identify the, the specific strategies and tactics that were used. Uh, and so part of this involved speaking with the Alcohol uh, Health Alliance Ireland, um, the organization that was established solely for the purposes of, of advancing the bill. And including organizations like uh, yours, Union uh, Alcohol Action Ireland, as well as several of the major bodies that represent physicians and, and other healthcare professionals, um, particularly the Royal College of Physicians Ireland. Um, we also spoke with some of the key civil society organizations that had grown increasingly concerned about alcohol harm, um, including the Irish Cancer Society, the Irish Heart Foundation, and some, some of the um, activists that were more kind of active at the local level. And so our findings um, as, uh, point to a highly coordinated effort to push this legislation through the system. Um, we found that Advocates were critical when the legislation was facing pressure, either from politicians or from the industry. Uh, and so we boiled down the Alliance's success in getting the legislation passed to, as you mentioned, three interrelated factors. Um, so I'll, I'll briefly talk about all three. So first, the, there was the creation of a broad-based advocacy coalition. Um, the coalition, as I mentioned, had been formalized for the creation of the Alcohol Health Alliance Ireland, which had been modeled after something similar in the UK. Um, crucially, they had representation from across civil society, physicians, public health experts, charities, religious organizations, youth organizations, um, and, and the size of this was, was impressive. Uh, I believe there were 62 organizations in total. And so this made it incredibly difficult for politicians to ignore. Um, it was also critical in terms of having everybody singing from the same hymn sheet, saying that alcohol harm was a major concern and that Ireland needed this particular legislation. Now, there's obviously a potential trade-off between the effectiveness of advocacy and the, and the size in terms of coalition building. And so there was a, a steering group that was developed within the coalition to lead on and coordinate the strategy. Um, but what I want to emphasize is that it was the broadness and the legitimacy of the coalition that was so essential. So individuals with knowledge and experience of seeing or treating alcohol harm every day um, was, was, was critical. Um, so you had liver specialists saying that they were seeing patients, um, you know, representing a much younger demographic because of access to cheap alcohol. So it was really about establishing this broad coalition that could credibly speak about the issue that was essential. 
So that's who was, was involved. And so what did they actually do? Um, so the, the second factor we identified was issue framing and, and message discipline. Um, so the Alliance framed the bill as fundamentally about health and addressing health harms. They used a range of, of platforms to reinforce this, this framing, including social media, web presence, press releases, all to emphasize that this was centrally about tackling health harms. Um, and so one of the things that we drew particular attention to was that they focused on the content of the problem that the bill was addressed to, uh, that the bill was designed to address rather than the particular measures within the bill. Um, so people can connect with the harms of alcohol, the problems that it presents. Um, they have experience uh, with harm in, in their families, in their communities, um, yet they probably have less of a connection with, with things around um, the mechanics of, of minimum unit pricing. So focusing on the harms is critical. And so you can begin to see the value of having that particular membership that I spoke about earlier. For the strategy to work, you, you, you basically had members and, and organizations and individuals who were comfortable talking about alcohol as a health problem. Um, what we also basically identified was, was, um, uh, was, was the discipline that the coalition had in terms of putting forth a consistent message. And the message was basically this. The status quo in, in, in Ireland was unacceptable. Um, access to, to low-cost, highly visible, uh, access to a highly visible uh, drug was, was leading to unacceptable levels of death, illness, violence, and accidents, and that this bill was about finally taking action. Um, the content of that action became less important, which, which I think is a really important takeaway. So the, the third and final thing that we found was that advocates possessed a keen understanding of how the political system worked in Ireland, and they used this to their advantage. So, you know, most advocacy campaigns are well-meaning. They're led by passionate supporters. Um, but in a lot of cases, campaigners can be naive about how politics works. Ultimately, it comes down to what is your theory of change? How are you going to contend with the barriers in the system? And so in Ireland, our research showed a very politically sophisticated theory of change and understanding. Uh, the framing and coalition building that I spoke about earlier, those things didn't arise um, from thin air. They reflected experiences, um, strategic thinking, and, and learning from past mistakes and, and, and successes. There were key insights in particular drawn from Ireland's experience with the smoking ban. Um, but most importantly, they understood how politics and communication worked. Uh, every day there was an effort to, to find a hook into the, the kind of the, the most important story of the day. So on something like World Mental Health Day, there was an effort to find an angle. How could they hook support for the alcohol bill into World Mental Health Day? And so that, that was, of course, relatively straightforward. But there was a reliance on several tactics that were really instrumental in terms of securing support for the bill. Uh, so advocates used records from Ireland's lobbying registry to show the scale of industry lobbying. Um, and they strategically leaked these uh, records to the press. And so this reminded the public and politicians that this is who opposed the bill. Um, and, and so in, in, in addition to this, they engaged in a multi-level uh, lobbying campaign. Coalition members would lobby politicians 
um, providing them with highly valuable information, um, telling politicians, this is how many people died in your community because of alcohol last year. And, and kind of given the nature of Ireland's electoral system, this was critically important. And then just finally, they worked with legislators to, to table amendments to the legislation that worked to effectively strengthen the bill. And so this put opponents constantly on the defensive. Um, it's really hard to defeat a, a moving target. And so this was, this was valuable. So hopefully you can see that all of these individual efforts were important, but they were also mutually self-reinforcing. It really boiled down to a, to, to a solid understanding of, uh, of the political system, combining the power of political mobilization through the alliance, but also persuasion through issue framing, really focusing on the harm and the unacceptability of the, of the status quo. Yeah, it's a really, a really fascinating insight because I think what it does, what you've done is you've, you've really pulled together what 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 would what may have seen as a kind of separate actions but yet have demonstrated i think in the paper certainly just how these three interlinked and and together you know as a cohesive force were probably more powerful than the individual actions themselves as well peter if i could maybe just ask you to to just come in at this point as well because i know that you know as i as i say i i i look to to you and your colleagues certainly as some of the pioneers in this in this realm of of developing progressive alcohol policy and certainly from the irish point of view you know we we've always looked to scotland in the context of what the work that had been done around the, the campaign to introduce minimum unit pricing in Scotland, which was a huge victory and a, and, a, and a really progressive piece of work around trying to reduce alcohol harms in Scotland, which of course is suffering very similarly to the population in Ireland. And I think what I'd be keen to know and see what you think about, you know, how does those reflections that Matt has talked about you know reflect back into some of the campaign work that you, that you had done at that time and are continuing to do you know is there is there similarities here and i think you're you know you, you you speak about sometimes you know the idea that there are two opposing coalitions here so i'd be interested to see what your reflections on some of that insight from matt's paper is yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, I, yeah, enjoyed Matt's paper very much, both reading it and his, his presentation there. Um, yeah, it was interesting that, that, that both you, Hunan, and, and Matt used the, the military language of battle. Um, and that, I think, was something we really needed to establish very early on, that this is a dispute, that there are different camps here. Um, there are differences of opinions and, and you're going to have to decide which, which side you're on. And that was important because the industry had been very keen and they still are to present themselves as being on the side of harm reduction, you know, that we're all basically in agreement. There might be a little bit of a, you know, disagreement at the margins, but we're all working towards the same goal. And I guess that had been the kind of predominant, you know, attitude and, 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 political kind of approach in, in, in Scotland in the early 2000s. Scottish Parliament was only set up in 1999, of course. So we actually had to kind of, if you like, be the un, deliver the unwelcome guest that we're not all friends here. You know, we're not all on the same side. And that was a very important part of the of, of the process. Um, and that, that really was an essential thing to, 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 to establish, that there was a meaningful disagreement here. And, and you would hear you were going to hear different things from the alcohol advocates than you were hearing from the industry. And I think that's an important, that's an important qualification because sometimes we, you know, I think in the context of any of these 
disputes across across the world, even at the highest level, we do we do forget that the, sometimes that there is an absolute dispute at the heart of this, and that is that you know you know one is operating in the context of a public good, while the other is operating clearly in the basis of a private interest. Yeah, and 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 the the risk of that is that if you take the kind of partnership thing that everybody needs to be uh, yeah, agreed, all the stakeholders, and of course that stakeholders are one, a one way street. You know, I I don't ever expect to sit in a dad Joe sales meeting, but you know they expect to participate in health things. But the risk with that partnership thing is that you 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 do the things that you agree on and the things that are too that are, you know, that you don't agree on get left in the in the too difficult to do pile. And those things are the things that are most important. So the price, availability, marketing are the things that there are disputes about. And the temptation, I think, if you want to keep a, a quiet political life is to is to just shelve them and work on, you know, a bit of schools education or some action on drink driving or something that's more consensus territory. And the problem is you then end up doing the, the low impact things and leave the high impact things un, undone. Mm. And in terms of the broader coalition that was established in Scotland around, I mean, obviously there was a high degree of uh, professional medical prestige potentially involved in some of the campaigning as well. Talk to us a little bit about just that broad alliance that came together in Scotland, both at the Civic Society Group and, and then at a more professional level. Yes, well, you know, Alcohol Focus Scotland has been established for a long time. It used to be known as Scottish Council on Alcohol, um, and it's a very effective uh, charity. But I think there was a feeling that we needed the health voice to get stronger, um, particularly as I was saying earlier that we were kind of moving into if we were going to be effective and follow the WHO guidance that was emerging then that, that was going to be contested territory and that the health professions were, were, were for various reasons, good people to, to operate in that contested territory. Just the way that the public viewed health professions, the way they looked to them for leadership and so on and so forth, much as we've seen during the pandemic. You know, we're recording this, hopefully, when we're getting towards the, the, the end of the pandemic, but we've seen very similar things with the, with the, the, the use of health professionals. So... Um, and so we did that quite consciously, actually advised by the communications professionals. And I guess that's, you know, doctors and nurses are used to breaking bad news, to saying things to people. You might not want to hear this, but this is going to be best for you in the long run. And so the way I thought about it is we were kind of doing that in a community in the way you, that you'd be doing with, you know, in your in your clinical practice. And do you think that, Peter, that kind of a medical messaging and the, and the harm messaging was what really brought the, the political uh, support on board in relation to trying to press ahead with minimum unit pricing in Scotland? I think it did because, you know, Matt, in his comments, said he wanted to make the point that the status quo was was unacceptable. Well, the, the problem, I think, was the status quo actually was being accepted. You know, people weren't, you know, accepted alcohol harm. Yeah, And exactly. they accepted it as a long-established thing. And, and, and it's interesting. I now see this internationally. But in Scotland itself, well, that's just how we are, it's our weather, it's our water, it's you know, our history, it's whatever. Um, so actually we had good health data that things were getting worse. You know, liver disease rates were rising. We had much better health data than we had, say, criminal justice data or child protection data. So a lot of the argument that things are changing, things are getting worse, was on, on the basis of the, of the health data. So those, kind of those two things came together, if you like, the sort of professional authority thing plus 
the, the data that we had to make the argument that this wasn't just the same old, same old things really were getting worse was mainly health data. Um, so I think those those two things came came, came together. Mm. Laurie, maybe we could ask you to join us at this point because I'm conscious of just taking up that point a little bit about the status quo was unacceptable. And obviously you and your organisation, Nordan, you know, work in a very... I think in a in, in a very different landscape than perhaps the Anglo-Irish type of uh, let's call it a, a alliance in terms of Ireland and and, and Scotland and you know you, you, your organization manages the expectations and the cultural nuances of of so many Nordic and Baltic and Scandinavian countries and so maybe in the context of the work that you've been doing maybe I could ask you just to bring some of the, your reflections on some of the comments and some of the approaches that uh, Matt has outlined. Well you know the region that we are working in the Nordic Baltic uh, region is r- really diverse in that sense that that with the Nordic countries we have we have the best the the masters in alcohol policy in the world actually uh, Professor Robin Room, I call him the John Lennon of alcohol policy, <laughs> wrote at one point that that actually the the term alcohol policy not very innovative, but uh, it was actually coined by the Nordic countries, and and he also wrote that that uh, in the seventies and eighties uh, being and coming to. Helsinki or Stockholm for uh, alcohol policy, alcohol researcher was like coming to a Vatican. So that's the background for that region and for these countries. And at the same time, Baltic countries have been uh, one of the worst when it comes to alcohol policy and uh, and alcohol consumption, alcohol-related harm. That's partly a legacy from the, the Soviet time, of course. And now in this network uh, where we are together, as you can imagine, the the experience sharing and and uh, working together is uh, quite a challenge in, in in many ways. In that sense, I can imagine. Yeah. So so the the, the approach from uh, or or the situation in the Nordic countries is uh, at the moment is is uh, actually keeping the status quo, and and being the stabilizing uh, factor in the in the whole society. Because when you know, let's take. Uh, Norway or Iceland, where the per capita consumption is around uh, six, seven liters, where do you go from there? The best, in a way, is to to be able to keep that level. At the same time, in the in the Baltic countries, where we have had uh, per capita consumption 14, 16 liters uh, in Estonia and in Lithuania, in 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 sometimes at at, at some point. You know, it's rather easy actually to come down from that, and and in recent years we have seen quite revo- revolutionising uh, acts or or uh, uh, policies introduced in in especially in in Lithuania, but also in in Estonia, and in Estonia in two thousand eight. We had uh, per capita consumption around fourteen liters, and now we have ten liters. So I think this is one of the uh, biggest reductions in Europe actually in, in ten years, but again in in the in the Nordic countries they have managed throughout decades 
to keep that low level uh, drinking and and very strong evidence based uh, alcohol policies and you're 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 working now together again in in this kind of coalition building around a specific issue around alcohol and cancer and that's that's i presume in some ways is is reflective of what's what's occurring at an eu level whereby there's a focus now on on trying to develop a coherent preventative strategy and and a, a broader strategy on beating cancer how have you managed to get that alignment around that one particular issue? Is there is there is there unity on messaging and and coalition actors as as Matt has outlined in that particular campaign? You know, the, there's again again quite a big uh, uh, gap in in between countries, and and partly this is I think uh, also financial issues in in Baltic countries where the Cancer societies, for instance, are are much poorer. They they have to make hard choices uh, into what kind of uh, topics they they focus and and uh, tobacco and obesity take uh, precedence in that sense. At the same time, cancer societies in in most of the Nordic countries are really strong uh, when it comes to alcohol and and cancer link. At the same time, still the the local national. Surveys, some that that the cancer societies themselves have made, show that the, the awareness level is still really, really low. Rather recent study done by by the Danish Cancer Society, for instance, showed that unprompted, only twenty two percent of of the respondents uh, knew the link between alcohol and cancer. So. So that's, I think, still in 2020 when the survey was done is, is rather, rather, rather disturbing. We actually started with this uh, focus on alcohol and cancer a bit earlier before the, the EU, EU focused on it. Uh, and now we are really happy that, uh, that the beating uh, cancer plan is echoing the same focuses and that, that we, we have been looking into. And, and of course... I, I do. I, I have to say that uh, that although I, I think already for many many years the the European alcohol policy community in a way says that there is a momentum on on alcohol and uh, and cancer link the the level of uh, activity or, or or focus on on this also in the NGO level is is maybe not as as good as it could be and should be. So I think there is uh, much to learn and and uh, also to cooperate uh, in this international level uh, to make it uh, stronger and better. Yeah, and that's that's actually a good place for us to to kind of try and widen out this discussion a little bit and maybe just throw our eye or throw our attention to what are the challenges that that kind of remain and and I think in that you know, of course, all of us are familiar that there's many, many. Uh, we can we can win individual battles at at, at one level, but to use the, the the military parlance again. But you know, we, how how will we win the war? And and I think in that context, as you say, you know, Peter has spoken about those, as I said, those opposing coalitions. And I think like the Nordic experience is that actually somewhat the coalition that you're actually competing against is actually probably the private coalition, the the, the industry coalition to try and soften uh, and liberalize a market that has probably coherent alcohol policy. And so maybe we can just look a little bit about 
what are these expanding and bigger bigger issues that are that are ahead of us? And I think that obviously at a European level, we certainly can see that there's a need for some degree of greater coherence around um, alcohol harms. Um, and at the moment, at the at the moment as we speak, you know, the WHO is going through the process of renewing its global strategy um, to reduce alcohol harm. And we've seen just this week that the, the volumes of submissions that were made by the the civic society groups in that in that context, and a lot of industry um, commentary has been has been submitted in into that process. So, uh, Peter, maybe I could ask you just to maybe to, to kind of kick off this kind of discussion, maybe just what do you see as the the learnings perhaps that we can bring forward into uh, these 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 debates and these these challenges that we're moving towards? And just to add into that as well, obviously, we've seen, you know, industry intervention in, in, in policy developments in places as far as South Africa recently as well. Um, and I just wonder what, what you think about the the next phases and what what capacities we need to bring to that you know can we learn from what matt has outlined here in terms of mobilizing more capabilities and you know how do we how do we how do we get to the next stage of really mobilizing public trust so that we can advance some of these more progressive policies i think firstly on the public trust issue we i think alcohol policy actually has quite a lot going for it you know and I say this all the time to my colleagues in London. Um, in the UK and Ireland, no political party has 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 lost a vote because of being strong on alcohol policy. So, in fact, and and, and we've done some polling actually UK wide that you know alcohol taxes are relatively popular taxes compared to other things. And uh, as I say, in, in Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, elections have been won by parties who who support you know alcohol controls. So I don't think we should. You know, lose lose sight of that. Um, I do think the cancer issue that Lowry raised is very is very important. Uh, first thing I'd like to say would be to pay tribute to the Irish Cancer Society, who were really very very early adopters of the alcohol cancer link, um, and and they did did great work on that. Um, but cancer is a bit different from, for instance, alcohol-related liver disease. For alcohol-related liver disease, you can really draw attention to the individual. You know, this person would not have died at the age of 53 if, if they had you know, not been a heavy drinker. You can't say the same thing about someone who's died of breast cancer or colon cancer or, or whatever. So the, the, the cancer message that we're trying to convey is very much a whole population one of you know reducing your population risk now again the covid pandemic might have got the public a bit used to thinking about that you know if you wear your mask it might mean your community's a bit safer even though it might not help you you know so it may be actually that that some of what we've been through over the last year or so so will will kind of improve the public understanding of that you know real population level thinking um, which, I, 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 you know, I think is what we need for cancer. And I think I would say the European Action Plan for Cancer says really good things about alcohol. It's a short section, but it basically says all the right things in, in, in a few paragraphs that to reduce the number of alcohol-related cancers, we need to reduce consumption and we need to do that through price availability marketing. So it lays that out very, very clearly. So I think the cancer looking ahead, I think 
conveying and getting understanding and, and, and uh, of the of the alcohol cancer link and support for the actions that are going to improve that. And those same actions, of course, will improve rates of liver disease, they'll improve the lives of children living in heavy drinking families and so on and so forth. So if you do the right things by cancer, it's going to be the right things for other things. So I think cancer, looking ahead in the future, is, is a very important one for, 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 for the sector to take on. I just wanted to bring in an, another important challenge in, in, in the European field, and, and this is uh, also obviously covered in the, in the process a lot, is, is, is the cross-border problem and issues. Uh, I think, again, in looking at, uh, at the strong Nordic countries, one of the problems that makes the effective alcohol policy measures ineffective uh, are exactly the, the cross-border trade problems, for instance, in, in Finland, where the, the best buys are implemented for decades. They are still at the same level of uh, per capita drinking as Estonia because, uh, because of the cross-border trade, uh, at least in, uh, in a very big part. And, and, and that's an issue for a whole Europe-wide approach. None of the countries can, can uh, solve this problem. And in this context, unfortunately, raising alcohol taxes can be sometimes uh, yeah. a wrong, wrong, wrong step. And as, as you mentioned, the, the battles and wars, we experienced in Estonia that exactly that that raising alcohol prices and prices and and making it in a very steep level can actually backfire and and in our case it it started a very strong cross border trade between us, Estonia and, and Latvia our neighboring countries so in some some cases uh, the effectiveness of these alcohol policies can be actually uh, threatened in that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very interesting that you know Larry and, uh, and I are, are are good friends and 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 work together on various of these these issues for a while now. And the Estonian changes happened about the same time as minimum unit price in Scotland, um, and and we we did not see the cross border, uh, you know, activity that that happened in in Estonia, and I think the one. Big reason for that was that minimum unit price. It, essentially, people will travel to save money on, you know, mid range and perhaps expensive products. Um, the people who are who are buying the very cheapest alcohol are, first of all, probably less likely to be mobile, less likely to be able to cross the border and and, and buy it. And we we saw much less. You know, we haven't seen substantial cross border flow. I think the other difference, and, and Larry might correct me here, is there always seems to be a kind of cultural thing that in, you know, Estonia, perhaps even go back to the Soviet times, people had to be, there's a lot of ingenuity involved in getting your daily things involved. And I think perhaps in Scotland, we'd gotten a bit lazy and we just expect to go to the supermarket and everything will be there. And and so we, we didn't actually see all these ingenious plans that people had talked about of for, for minimum price. So it's very interesting that the two the two countries and the two systems showed quite, quite different results. But I, I do think fundamentally it's important for Ireland that minimum unit price is less likely, I think, to drive cross-border trade than an overall you know, tax increase across the board on all products. Yeah, and I think that's that's an important point because in the in the context of what is a very hot topic 
here in Ireland right now is is the delay in, in, in implementing the policy of minimum unit pricing. And rather spuriously, you know, cross-border trade is being uh, identified by the opponents of MUP as the reason why we shouldn't uh, implement MUP. And of course, you know, it's, it, it is fair to say that the, the factors that which influence cross-border trade, certainly on the island of Ireland, are far, far greater and far more constant than the, the, than the price of the can of beer. Um, you know, we have a different, we have two different currencies on the island. We have a different VAT regime on the island. So there's a, And of course, there's a huge chunk of population who live in that border area who do their shopping, recognizing the various uh, fluctuations that take place. Um, so that's a kind of, kind of context on, on minimum unit pricing here in Ireland. I just keen to get Matt back in here if I can, Matt. I, I'm just picking up on Peter's point um, that, you know, no political party, certainly Peter, I think if I'm paraphrasing Peter correctly, in the UK, you know, didn't lose any votes because they supported alcohol policy. Um, and of course, as you identified in your paper, there's a big difference between winning a, a battle to get policy approved, but there's a bigger war to get policy implemented. Um, and I'm just interested in the context of Peter's comment about the votes and the loss of votes or loss of political support. Is it, is it somewhere in the implementation, perhaps, that the challenge really lies? Yeah, so that's a really, really interesting issue. And I think, you know, a lot of, a, a big mistake that a lot of uh, that advocates and, and others make in terms of their their understanding and the way in which politics work is they see the kind of end goal often as the enactment of these of these measures or the adoption of them in the, in the legislative process. But of course, the battle is just basically beginning at that stage. And um, by that time, you have, you know, the media probably loses attention because the bill's been passed, but a lot of the important details are being hammered out within the government. Um, but it also that but that actually pre- presents an opportunity for those that are opposed to the legislation to either delay the process, to weaken provisions, and, and that kind of thing. So we can't just kind of think about these these issues um, uh, around uh, uh, around adoption as as the end goal. You have to think about how to build um, durable policies that are, that are going to withstand pressure from uh, opponents, um, and that's going to endure over time. It's 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 a really kind of interesting parallel. You know, we were talking earlier about the uh, about this the Scandinavian countries, um, which you know their starting point is is are relatively coherent, strong alcohol policies, and the challenge there is how to ensure that those um, endure across time. And so I think there's actually lessons for potentially for for Ireland and others to to look at how um, countries like that have have fought off pressures to undo those those hard fought but but fragile victories. Yeah, uh, Peter, if I could just get maybe a quick comment from you on that context. I mean, obviously, you know, MUP was a big policy shift in in the Scottish context, but of course there was a six year battle to actually get it implemented. I think there's something very interesting in that idea that, you know, sometimes as advocates around and building all these excellent coalitions, we sometimes do focus on the bigger the bigger issue of the policy but without actually really 
fundamentally doing uh, a clearer you know risk analysis perhaps and on how implementation will be achieved was it, it, was there something in there and in, in that in the scottish experience in that well i think that you know people involved in the story that be ourselves as advocates and politicians knew that the legal challenge was going to come the industry are very clear about that right from the start and i think in terms of the and that i think was a really interesting phase of the the process because i think you might have thought that threat of legal challenge and we'll take you to Europe and you'll, you you won't win would have put government off. But I think actually the stage of the kind of political cycle we were at in Scotland with a new party in power for the first time, they reacted to that by saying, well, actually we won the election, you know, we, we, uh, you know, running the country, not you. And the more the industry actually said, and they were quite patronising about this, which really backfired on them. You know, we understand Europe. We, you know, function in trade discussions have done for years, you know, in our with our whiskey firms. You're enthusiastic newcomer yes. politicians. You don't understand it. Take it from us. This will never work. And that really put people's backs up. You know, it really worked in our favour, actually. And that, I think, was just because of the political phase that, that Scotland was in. Um, so I think we went into to, 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 to that particular battle with our eyes open. The interesting phase we have now is the uprating, you know. So we're at 50 pence per per UK unit, which is eight grams of alcohol, 10 mLs. It, it, it you know, our position would be it, it can't stay at 50 pence. There needs to be an uprating. But, and it's understandable just now with the pandemic and so many other things happening, we've you know, I think our next task will be to establish a kind of meaningful discussion about how does that uprating process happen in a in a regular way that doesn't mean it's a fresh political battle every two years or whatever. So, um, and, and we and we haven't got there yet. So, I think uh, absolutely as Matt says, you know, even with something pretty big that gets implemented, like minimum unit price, there's there's maintenance to be done on that, and we I think we really need to work on getting that maintenance of the policy you know firmly and reliably established yeah and laurie similarly i'm i'm conscious too about the the context of what we in ireland as well we have this battle around alcohol labeling and of course that's a big european-wide uh endeavor as well to try and change you know the the idea of informing citizens about what it is that you know the right to know about what's in these products, and of course now it's featuring. We see it's been articulated even more so in the, in the most recent EU strategy. But implementing that at 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 a European level has been very problematic, and Eurocare is obviously very much at the heart of that. Um, do you see that the, this sort of implementation issue as a, as a challenge as well? Yeah, definitely. Of course, I, I I agree. I think Matt said that, that sometimes uh, we as advocates we are only focusing on on you know introducing a, a new measure, but but the work only starts when it's introduced, and then 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 um, the problems uh, uh, start. And in 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 the in the Eastern European countries, I I, I can think I can generalize, uh, and in the Baltic states, with with the background in in the Soviet regime, where where the legislation was something that you didn't uh, respect that much, or or where you have still the history of understanding that uh, that what the state say, tells you to do uh, is not something that we uh, wish to obey. That's still in in some countries, I think, uh, quite alive and uh, 
and kicking in that sense. Uh, so, so definitely, I, I think the the implementation part and the enforcement part is is crucial with with these effective alcohol policy measures as well. You know, the the very interesting uh, case that took place in in Lithuania a couple of years ago when 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 we had a, a health minister uh, growing out from the alcohol policy advocates, uh, Dr. Aurelius Veriga, uh, who was also a board member in, in our Northern Network, and then went to the politics and and very quickly, in in few months actually, made a, a total revolution in alcohol policy, introduced uh, advertising ban and, and raised uh, the age limit to 20 and so on. So that shows that actually when the polit- political will is there, um, you know everything is possible and and uh, and now what the some countries in in our region have to show is again the stability what if the the government changes what uh, how do they look at alcohol policy then and and that's a challenge that we are facing sure yes well yes i think we're i think we're we're very we're very familiar with that 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 context in ireland especially as we're sort of two years down the line having enacted that piece of legislation and we're still waiting for major pillars of it to be impl- implemented unfortunately but anyways look i mean that's that's all the time we have for today i'm very grateful for the time that our three guests have given us and i'd like to thank matt and laurie and peter if you'd like to learn more about the challenges that we've discussed today you'll find out more information about my colleagues work at uh, the shap uh, website which is the scottish health action and alcohol problems which is at shap.org.uk you'll find some details on eurocare the european alcohol policy alliance at eurocare.org and at Nordan, the Nordic Alcohol and Drug Policy Network at Nordan.org. Or, of course, you can learn more about us and Alcohol Action at our site on alcoholireland.ie or follow us at Alcohol Ireland across all social media platforms. But for now, thank you for listening today. And until the next time, stay safe.